Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We are now recording. Don't say anything incriminating. How's your son? Back to the front three. It's good to have you. No Adam this week. Uh, sorry, but we have gone stateside with two stateside j- journalists. I want to say, uh, or writers. Uh, Kristen Hennage, long-term fixture of the podcast. Good to have you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on, Christian, as so many people call you. Uh, and then it's Kristen. And then uh, Nico, or do I, do I call you Nick or do I call you Nico? What, what, which one do you prefer? Whatever floats your boat, I think. Really? Do you not? Is, is Nico like a, a term of endearment or is Nick like just too formal? It depends on who you are. Uh, if you're a woman in my life, usually you call me just Nick and usually angrily. If you're my parents or you guys, you call me Nico. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, right. He takes the more the the less rounded name with the females, but the more uh, rounded name, a more subtle, more nice sounding name with his family. Interesting. Uh, have you ever had a woman call you Nico? Um, I'm not going to answer that question. Fair, n- fair enough. Um, here are some questions he will answer on the front three this week: uh, Manchester City versus Lyon. Uh, Nico, uh, there are a lot of people picking this one apart already because people were so gleeful over the fact that Man City crashed out of the Champions League uh, in the year when everyone was going, oh, this is ideal for them to win it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, have you had any sort of post-mortem thoughts as a fan of Pep's football and not necessarily Manchester City? Yeah, I, I think... You know, I've th- I've thought about it a lot because the takes have been pretty interesting after this one. Right. Um, but obviously, you know, we we we've heard it a million times. The you know, even before the game, you know, the tired narrative or or regurgitated narrative of Pep Guardiola overthinking the the tie comes to comes to the fore, and people you know like to imagine what he might do, and then the game happens, and we found the past. I don't know, five or six times that that he's apparently overthought it. The reason I don't think I don't necessarily subscribe to that, that theory um, aside, you know, maybe I have to acknowledge some degree of bias. Like you said, I'm not necessarily a fan of Manchester city in these, in these times where we can assess our, 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 (laughs) our 
uh, morality, but I, I am a fan of him as a coach and, and the style of football that he plays. So there is a degree of bias to the way that I think that I have to acknowledge, but I don't really think that there is like an element of overthinking because I don't think that's the way that he chooses to approach games. He doesn't from the press conferences I've seen and from, you know, the very matches that we are all subject to. uh, I I don't think he makes decisions based off of the magnitude or stature or occasion of the game. What we saw was, and he said this in the press conference um, afterwards was that, you know, because of the nature of the way Manchester City play, high possession team that likes to play with a high line so that they have better um, efficacy in their pressing, they tried to, to you know, cover some of those weaknesses by not necessarily being more conservative, but playing Zhao Cancelo and Kyle Walker in a specific role that maybe it wasn't as advanced or, or maybe more defensively focused because he said, you know, they're very good at attacking the channels and we didn't want to leave them in their buildup and, you know, provide a bunch of space for them out wide. So we tried to cover our weak points and that resulted in Manchester City not playing the best on the ball for the first 15 or 25 minutes. Um, and then, you know, Leon scored a pretty decent uh, or rather low um, expectancy chance and, and the game went on from there. They played a good second half and things just didn't pan out. Um, I understand the criticism of some of the approach because some, as many have said, you know, but hindsight is twenty twenty. that if they would have just lined up as they always do and focused on the things that they're good at and created a bunch of chances, you know, maybe things could have gone a different way. But I think it's not unreasonable, especially given the way that we've spoken about Pep Guardiola in the past, to imagine that, you know, the things that have been leveled as criticisms at him before is that, you know, he's idealistic and he prefers his style of football, especially in these knockout games that are down to a single game in this year's competition because of the coronavirus. Um, You know, he prefers his style of football and maybe that's too idealistic. So you have a coach maybe that's changing approach a little bit now to account for some of the things that his talented opponents are doing. He did it against Real Madrid and it obviously worked. Um, so that's that's kind of why I don't really agree with the narrative, but I'm interested to see what you guys have to say about it. Well, it's certainly an interesting one, isn't it, Chris? Because I think the overall there is a narrative that's that's run in the press and you know Twitter and everywhere else after that that uh, Pep does seem to overthink these things, or maybe when we're not thinking about overthinking, we're talking about overcomplicating for the players possibly, or there are changes which specifically seem to screw up a certain element of a player's game. Am I Am I wrong in that? Or like, is it just that people are drawing these lines because they don't normally watch Man City with that level of uh, incision? I think to me, what it is when we look at the idea of overthinking, I almost associate an overactive mind with Pep Guardiola anyway, whether it's the Champions League semi-final or an away trip to 18th place. I think he has always operated with that very detail-heavy approach. I think what stands out to me when it comes to these types of games, like the one against Lyon, is that, to me, looking as an outsider, it comes across slightly as a little lacking of self-confidence in what he has used up until that point. So he starts to think, well, how can we adapt to, to essentially remove the weaknesses that they may have identified? Whereas I think, as Nico alluded to there, if he had just gone with what he seems to do most weeks in the Premier League, thrown Foden in there, 
maybe David Silva. I do think they would have blitzed Leon off the park. I think it's difficult when we try and analyse these Champions League games because I do think the the narratives or the talking points get established really quick and then hammered into the ground about, well, you know, technically Leon aren't the seventh worst team in France and blah. <clears throat> I get that. I totally get that. That's That's not an inaccurate evaluation based on the individual talent that they have. But when I put those two teams together 10 times, I think Man City can blitz them fairly comfortably more often than not. Now, I grant that's not the most scientific evaluation, but you get the point that I'm alluding to. And I just think that for Guardiola, it needs to be, I don't know, I think it just needs to be more confidence in what he does. And and I thought it was crazy to read this morning that Xavi was advocating like just throwing more money at the problem. Because I don't really think that's the issue. It wasn't a lack of talent that stopped them winning. I think it was a combination of him trying to adapt to a situation that didn't really need any adaptation that I think would have been quite confident in his original plan. And then also the fact that this Leon side were very good. And I, and I think actually something that I've not really seen touched on is I think they took some lessons from what Mikel Arteta did in, in the FA Cup semi-final. Right. Okay. So you're saying, yeah, once someone sort of works that out, it becomes very difficult for Man City to quickly counter that. Because I think Guardiola touched on some of the reasons that he tried to adapt. I think it was to do with him being concerned about um, their strikers in the channels and things like that. But if you watch the first goal, Nico talked about it being um, a low, was it low efficiency chance that you used, sorry, or low? It's just like, didn't it? yeah, it didn't have a great expectancy yeah. going in. So, so if I can just take away the finish for a second or, or the, that moment, the build-up to it, the sort of, it gets played quite wide and goes back inside. And what, is, what has happened, in my opinion, is that through that little interchange, they've pulled a defender out and then gone back and straight over the top. And if you watch <clears throat> Arsenal's second goal in the FA Cup for Aubameyang, it's a very similar build-up. It's not identical, but it's certainly similar. And it's something actually that I've seen Guardiola use himself, where he will essentially rotate midfielders around with a view of pulling a defender, usually a fullback, towards the ball and then using the space that's been created to expose the opposition by then ferreting a, a fullback in behind. So I, th- I think that's the other thing is that he built such a robust system, Guardiola, at Man City, that there are going to be times where teams, just because of how many games they play, how many people try different ideas, that you're going to build up a pretty strong repertoire of ways to potentially test them and and put them under. And you're going to lose some games. Is it disappointing for the project? Yeah. I think this is probably, in my opinion, one of the best chances they've had to win the Champions League this year because of COVID and the craziness and all of that stuff. But at the same time, I think there's a little bit more shade of grey between the two scenarios here that are being put forward. Well, it's certainly a strange one. I, I guess, uh, I mean, Nick, do you want me to give you a bit of an opportunity to, to reply to what Chris just said there? Because, I mean, it's not as if Pep it's not as if any style of football is completely infallible, but strangely, we seem to hold Pep Guardiola to this almost infallible level of uh, like footballing excellence because of the narrative that has been built up around him. We we sort of go, well, you know, he'll win every game, 
because he plays perfect football. So in many ways, his the appearance or the reputation that precedes him doesn't necessarily help um, him or his teams sometimes because his teams can also be expected to uh, perform almost perfectly, which is obviously not always going to be the case. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we also, like you, like you said there, sort of engage with Pep, the idea of Pep Guardiola and maybe not sometimes and maybe not the actuality of Pep Guardiola a lot of the time. Like I said, against Real Madrid, there was some tactical tinkering and there was, you know, they played a 4-4-2 with Gabriel Jesus on the left and it did well to both pin Carvalho back and also provide some fluidity in the attack when they needed it in transition. So in the same sense that we might criticize someone or Pep Guardiola in this scenario for adjusting when, or, you know, twisting when he needed to stick or whatever the, the phrase is, there was, you know, we didn't, engage with it that way we didn't engage with the analysis in the same way in the previous round and i can appreciate a lot of the 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 sentiments in in the direction of well if Manchester city just you know lined up as they always did then their you know their chance creation would have done the rest it's not as if the game was particularly even even as it stood you know they created a ton of chances and they conceded some um which you could say is is sort of antithetical to the supposedly uh more solid approach that he wanted to to actuate but equally i think that's just football you know he's he's talked about it he's talked about this quote-unquote champions league curse himself in a lot of press conferences and said you know if you look at the the some of the games against chelsea when he was at barcelona and and other things you know he has said it himself you know there are games that I we were the lesser team we did not deserve to go through and he he went through and there have been games on the other end of the spectrum where they were by far the better team and I think this is one of those cases and they didn't go through so a lot of the times it, it is just football but do you think though that is to some extent distracting or detracting away from what the actual question here is, is here with Pep that getting a team over the line in recent years to win the Champions League which have been such excellent squads, which seem like they are on the trajectory to win the Champions League, which, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You would have expected one of these sides to to have won the Champions League that he has managed. Yeah. Um, and in many ways, winning the league with Man City or winning the league with Bayern feels very expected. It's the Champions League, weirdly, which feels very exceptional for Pep and for everyone else. Um, why is it that he has that problem? Is that uh, you can't necessarily level unless you're in this in the camp? I don't know if you can necessarily level, you know, an accusation at him of like, well, you're not very good at preparing it for this, or you're not very good at getting the players' mentality ready for that. But clearly, there is something which is stopping the players from performing in those scenarios. And then the problem is also that uh, we almost ask the question at the wrong time because you know if. Raheem Sterling had scored the chance that he had, <laughs> then the yeah. likelihood is that Leon don't go down the other end. Um, yeah, yeah. But we don't know that they might. They may have. They may have. Yeah. Later, gone down the other end and scored, and it, it, you know it could have been exactly the same. So there's a lot of frustration in the analysis because it really seems like Pep Guardiola is not only benefits from but also suffers from his own mythical presence at any yeah. club. Where it's like right. He's he's a bit of you know I mean I don't even feel like I saw as much as we felt like we were getting insight from the Man City doc on the Amazon uh, 
on Amazon's documentary, we didn't really get that much of a, a pass into the mind of the man or the way that he prepares his teams. We really got very rudimental squad footage where it's like, right, go out there and perform. And everyone's <laughs> like, what a genius. Like, I, there was actually there was actually some good some good tactical stuff in that documentary. I, I would argue. But. Would you say? I mean, do you mean a couple of the behind the scenes conversations or? Yeah, like, it was sort of. I don't think it was entirely intentional, but like you could see, and this was, you know, very true of the team at the time. You could see when he was sort of moving around certain pieces and and the uh, the the uh, whiteboards in the background that the build up, for example, like that's something that Manchester city have like built their attack on is creating space by circulating the ball at the back. It always ended with Fernandinho and like that structure is pretty like it's elucidated upon in, in the documentary. I, I, would you, would you not have said though that we already knew that? Would yeah. You, not have said, I mean, you could maybe, watch the game and see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's good to confirm that. That's also where I don't know about you guys, but I'm always confused by this by, uh, I, I often speak to other journalists and I spoke to a couple of people in the NBA and also a couple of people around the Premier League going, well, why don't we do, why don't you guys do tactical analysis? And they went, well, managers uh, don't want you to give away their game plan. And I'm like, I'm, I, I said, to, well, I'm not asking you to go to them on game day and go, what's the specific plan here? <laughs> I, I said, the likelihood is, like Bielsa said, actually, if you're at the top level, like you already know from all the analysis that you do from all your departments, pretty much what the other team is going to try and do anyway. Yeah. So analysis, I mean, maybe it, it might give you some insight into the, the uh, psyche of someone, uh, you know, it might give you an, an insight into why someone might take a penalty a certain way. Maybe you don't ask them about that or maybe you leave that out of the cup, but really like people know what you're going to do. And then it's really down to the talent of the players around that. And, and maybe that gets me onto my next question here for you, Nico, because I'm, I'm fascinated with what you think about Man City. Like, when Pep Guardiola is buying a player and he's spending the money, what do you think Pep Guardiola thinks he's spending the money on? Because it's clear that he values high quality or whatever qualities it is that he values in those players, he thinks is worth spending that money. Otherwise, if it was possible to play pep football with any of these players, he would just coach them that way. So yeah. there's clearly a quality that he is looking for in these players, which he can't just get from any player. So what is it that Pep is seeing and buying when he buys a player from, your, from what you can see? I think it, they bring a, a specific skill set. You know, a lot of people, for example, have uh, criticized uh, Otamendi in, in his time there. And obviously, I think, you know, Otamendi was, a, I think, was a transfer pre Pep. Um, but he has got a lot of time under Pep because of the abilities that he has, realistically, without in, sort of engaging the meme that is Nico Otamendi at this point. He. Right has excellent ball progression through the middle with his, uh, with his feet, not necessarily dribbling, but passing. Um, and then he's also, when he was at, when he was in Spain and he was partnered with Mustafi, he's in, he can be a really excellent, aggressive defender in situations where the press breaks and there's a counter on and it's a one V one situation. He's talented in those situations. It's just that, that the, it, by the nature of the position and by the nature of defending, 
defenders don't often come out superior in those situations. You know, they have to be aided by the system or other defenders, the goalkeeper or whatever. So he has found a lot of time and found a lot of time in title winning seasons for Manchester City, despite, you know, the ire that he uh, accrues for Manchester City fans because he has a skill set. So I think when Pep Guardiola or whoever is responsible for buying players and, and, you know, talking to Pep Guardiola about the players that are going to be part of the squad, look at players and decide whether they want them to be part of the team. It's what can they do and what are they good at doing? And does that, is that something that we need in the team? Chris and I were talking about Nathan Ake, for example, prior to the pod. And I think what Nathan Ake brings is he has a positional awareness understanding of where he needs to be within a system that possesses the ball. And he also progresses the ball really well, which is what a team like Manchester City uh, needs and, and and does really well. John Stones is is someone that progresses the ball really well, but unlike Otamendi, doesn't have the physical attributes or doesn't have the physical capacity to be very good in 1v1 situations or physical situations. So I think it's it's just about the skill set. It's does the skill set match what the team needs in a specific position? Mm-hmm. Well, clearly not. Um, otherwise, you'd be in the Champions League final. <laughs> um, <you laughs> know. Um, although, yeah, in many ways, you've got to feel... Um, a quick word, Kristen, on the narrative around Raheem Sterling's finishing. Raheem Sterling's uh, Because at this point, it just seems to be a bit of a stick to beat him with. Uh, and players are going to miss chances ultimately. But I guess, you know... The, it the, is a pretty the, insane chance to miss, though. I mean, it was it was a very insane chance to miss, but then there were also a lot of people who were kind of waiting for... Uh, they're, they're almost wait for those moments. And actually, Raheem has scored some great goals this season. Yeah, you know, for sure. Well, that's the funny thing about, like... I'll also... Sorry to interject once again, but the, the funny thing about the... Because my friend Bobby Gardner, who... Uh, works in football now. Um, wrote a piece for the Ringer a long he's time. Inside ago. of football, wow. he's inside of the football now. It's incredible. Right. I'm really proud of him. Right. Um, right. But uh, he wrote a piece for the Ringer a while ago about Raheem Sterling, and there was a moment in the Netflix in the uh, Amazon documentary where the brilliance of Raheem Sterling isn't necessarily that he's going to score all those chances because his finishing, I think, anecdotally, probably isn't that good. But the encouraging thing about him is that not only as like a playmaker and creating chances for other players does he excel and is he sort of towards the top, but he gets in those positions so much that finishing is something that you can work on. It's a it's a trait that is 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 in some way um, enhanceable or you you can improve upon it. But having the mental capacity or footballing IQ to get into those situations so consistently while it is also something that you can enhance is something a little bit more complex. And that's what makes him such an exciting player, but obviously didn't pan out. <laughs> it didn't pan out. Uh, Chris, the narrative in the UK is obviously um, not favorable, but at some point I get the feeling that, you know, while we're busy castigating all these young players, um, I don't know. I guess we we kind of believe that um, you, I don't know in some way that the fire will make them better, and then when they do well at the Euros, then we'll go see you are good. Uh, yeah, you know it's funny. There was a, a moment in the PSG game where Neymar and Mbappe broke through, and it was just Angelino at the back, and they sort of messed it up. I think 
Mbappe played it behind Neymar, he slipped and then falls down. And there was a moment where Darren Fletcher said, how do two players that talented mess that <laughs> And I thought, you know what, that's kind of the, the Sterling issue in a nutshell, is that we just don't really accept human error in football. I don't know why, we could probably opine for hours on, on all of that stuff, but I just think that, yes, sometimes players are going to miss those chances. And I think as XG has taught us, that you can almost uh, work that out right down to the number. So, yeah, it, it's a, a massive chance, and I'm sure one that will frustrate Sterling until, you know, for the rest of his days. Um, but that's one of those instances where I, I don't really think you can apply much science or rhyme or reason to it. It's, it's just a very poor finish from him. And, and yeah, it, it gives, I think, a degree of confirmation bias to what we perceive his weaknesses as, but I'm, I'm not fully convinced there's actually any validity in the idea that he's a bad finisher just because of how many goals he's scored the last few years. Yeah. Ah, but we move on, um, and Leon clearly move on into the next round. We, we spent a long time um, get, getting over uh, Man City, but actually, do we believe that Leon have any opportunity uh, to win this here, or is it just that they're just going to get absolutely steamrolled by uh, a Bayern team who are the clear favourites in this competition now? Nico? Are they the clear favourites now? Is that the betting well, odds? I mean, uh, you, I mean, in my mind, they are because of the <laughs> okay. mentally weak PSG. Ten to one in Lawrence McKenna's mind. Get your bets in there. I'll, I'll give you those. I'll <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I think. The interesting thing, uh, the interesting thing about obviously this situation is that it's not a two-legged tie anymore. It's a single-game knockout, and that makes it. I think that changes things a lot for coaches and their approach, and and the players as well. Is that you know anything can happen over ninety minutes, as we as we saw um, with City, but Bayern are obviously, I, I you know nonetheless, regardless of how we see you know the favoritism of and, and the quality of these teams. It's still. It's not like the goals that they scored against Barcelona carry over. They demolished a pretty, let's say, tactically inept Barcelona team. Um, so yes, are Bayern the so, like I would consider them and PSG to be pretty similar um, with regards to their chances of of winning it at this point. Um, but yeah, obviously. Bayern are, are considerably better than this Lyon team, but we saw this Lyon team put out a Manchester City that were also considerably better than them. So who knows what can happen? Uh, Kristen, Barcelona. What the, what the fuck? <laughs> That's what it says in the doc, actually, folks. It is actually yeah. what it says in the doc, which is why I'm, I'm just following. I'm just trying to follow the notes. Um, yeah, just... I mean, you could argue it's been it's been leading to this. Um, I don't think results How many like years happened by accident. Um, it was just it was just horrific, and I'm not even a Barcelona fan, and I have no links to that football club at all. But you know, the, even the the Coutinho brace at the end, the, I thought the assist was bad enough. If, if that, if ever you needed sort of a quick. Summarization of, of where it's gone wrong for Barcelona. The player they loaned to Bayern Munich comes on, gets an assist, scores two goals, and makes it 8 2 as they crash out of the Champions League. It's a very sad situation to watch, I have to be honest, because 
we are firmly witnessing the, I guess you could say, dissolving the evaporation of what was a pretty iconic European team. And that's not to say that they can't get back there, but it's going to take a lot of work. And I think it's going to take time and patience. And the worry I have is that Barcelona don't seem to have a lot of that. Um, the talk is they're about to <laughs> with Coleman, which I'm sure we can come on yeah. to that. But yeah, it's, it's just... Well, no, no, please, please do, do come on to that now because, I mean, it's, it's quite fascinating really, isn't it? If you want to try and keep Lionel Messi, the best thing to do is to get Ronald Koeman. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's interesting. They're not the only team that I think have been guilty of this. The idea of leaning on a former player because there is some sort of esoteric, intrinsic value that they bring that cannot be replicated by an outsider. Um, we've seen Man United do it with Solskjaer. Chelsea with Lampard, uh, Milan did it with Gattuso as well. Goodness, completely forgot this even happened. Juventus have just done it with Pirlo. It, it's very much, I think, a trend at the minute to do it. The, the problem, I think it always has been too. The, the, the problem I think you've got is that there are very few clubs that do it sort of successfully. Um, Ajax is one to me that I think integrates its former players into influential roles post-playing career very well. You have Edwin van der Sar, Mark Overmars. I think van der Sar is in charge of marketing. Um, Overmars is sporting director. So there's an ability to reintegrate people that are, I guess, aware of the traditions and things like that, or even just understand how the club operate. I think it's so easy to convince yourself that there's some kind of cauldron of... uh, you know, which is brew that only certain people can understand about a football club. A lot of the time, it really is just a case of we were winning. That's that's what a lot of people's best time with a club is. We were winning and we were doing it well. And it's then sort of trying to find the correlations with what was uh, contributing to that success that I think is, is where the actual detail comes in. It, is there also then a bit of a is there then a bit of a problem that it seems that Barcelona have let their eye off the ball a little bit here, and they are not as well. They just don't seem focused at all because the the winning culture was almost assumed. It was like, in many ways, the idea where Pep Guardiola you know did make it feel inherent as if Barcelona couldn't lose became a bit of a problem. Um, I think I think look th- these are the things that I think you can definitely point to as being issues there's been a drop in i would say the the talent level coming out of la masia um and that some of that has to fall on the club so look some of it is just how good are the players that you're getting in um i think to me what is what they have greater influence over has absolutely been the transfer policy whether it's coutinho that we talked about was mandembele not getting Asensio. Uh, Takafusa Kubo going back to Japan and then Real Madrid snapping him up. Sort of Barcelona just seemed to completely forget the guy even existed. Um, and now he again looks like a, a decent young prospect. Is is on loan at Villarreal this season or will be? That to me is where I look at it and think, yeah, the people making the decisions on the on the recruitment side of things have massively messed up. And so now you've created this situation where. A pretty good example of, of the logjam is 
you have Sergio Busquets, who is is wonderfully talented, has tremendous pedigree. You then have also got Frankie de Jong. Frankie de Jong really wants to be where Sergio Busquets is. That's not to say they're identical players, but that's the sort of role that he wants to inhabit. And I think when they moved him centrally against Bayern, de Jong looked a lot more comfortable than playing, I think it was wide, trying to get my bearings at the minute as I'm thinking of it. It was wide of the midfield three, let's put it that way. And it just doesn't work. And it's 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 a really basic thing. And, and it's just the idea of, okay, we're getting this player. We're spending a boatload of money on them. How are we going to integrate them? Where is the position? Because the truth is, at that level now, you can't just throw players on a field and hope that it works. I really don't think you can. Um, people might point is, to is that part of the problem? That's, that's not true, but I, I just don't believe it. And I think what would scare me if I was a Barcelona fan now was that not only have Bayern made some really clever moves of late, Alfonso Davies is one of them. I was a big fan of Davies from the moment he came through at Vancouver. Um, even I didn't think he would grow this quickly in such a short amount of time. But people like that, they just bossed them physically. They were quicker all over the field. They really were. And that, again, that's sort of where we can point to the tactical elements and, and these little nuances. But what stuck out to me personally watching it was just how much more aggressive Bayern were. They really did ride roughshod over them. And I think to get that kind of quality back into this Barcelona team or to, or to introduce it, you're going to have to get a lot of different players in there. Nick, that's where it leads on to Barcelona rebuild. D- discuss the idea of what a rebuild means and if you can even rebuild with Messi at this point in his career. Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult because as I saw the headlines rolling through with the ESPN FC and, and all the other you know major media outlets talking about the implosion of Barcelona after you know the demolition by Bayern Munich, it's one of those things that like we've been seeing slowly over the past couple of years, the sort of degradation of Manchester United as a club and their expectations, you know, they went from consistently winning titles to struggling, let's say, to qualify for the Champions League to not qualifying for the Champions League and so on and so forth. So it's certainly within the realm of a, of possibility that a club as big and as monetarily successful as Barcelona start to degrade a little bit. But what I want to question is that, which I think has legitimate grounds, is, is this really the downfall of Barcelona? Obviously, Chris alluded to a lot of the maybe systemic or squad issues that they have um, at the team right now. If you look at their first team, it's a lot of older players that have maybe more sentimental value than actual use value. Um, But, you know, in five years, are are we going to be looking at a team that is like Manchester United struggling to qualify for Europe or just a little bump in the road? I think all of that is sort of contingent on how they grandfather out Lionel Messi, if that's even possible, and how you know you handle that situation as a whole, because it, it's almost an impossibility imagining him going somewhere else, but also how that would work financially. You know, who could even afford him? Who could afford his wages? And if that isn't possible, then people, that's for sure, yeah, exactly. And if that isn't possible, then 
how do you play Messi in his latter years, right? Like he, his production certainly hasn't um, significantly decreased. If, if anything, over the past couple of years, he's put on, he's become more versatile and more sort of holistic in his ability to contribute to others as well as continue to put up decent goal numbers himself. Um, and I think PSG actually tonight are, were a perfect example of what, of what an isolated but still structured system looks like. PSG and Thomas Tuchel specifically made a system for Neymar to pretty much roam freely and connect with the variety of other talented players that they have there. Has that structure been available to Lionel Messi since maybe, uh, uh, not Valverde, um, Luis Enrique's departure? I don't think so. That's probably the saddest part about all of this is that he hasn't had the coaching to match his level of talent for quite some time now. So the implosion or, or restructuring of Barcelona is entirely, as it always has been probably, contingent upon this one player. And they have shown no ability to, to, to uh, navigate those waters uh, particularly well in the past couple of years. And I think that's where the, the main word comes from. I guess then, Chris, the, the question for me comes through, would Barcelona, I know this sounds crazy, be good, it, would it be good for them to cash in on Messi now uh, and you know, essentially rebuild without someone like Messi? Or, because, you know, from what you see inside the club and from what you hear inside the club, Messi isn't exactly the best or most revolutionary leader that they need right now he doesn't seem like that kind of a player that's not a criticism of him it's just not the kind of guy that he's looking to be or is right now because even when I saw him the other night he passed the ball it went um, not where he wanted it and he just walked away yeah that that wasn't great to see at all I I must be honest there's part of the whole thing that reminds me a little bit of when Wayne Rooney was getting ready to leave um, Manchester United in the sense that everyone agreed he was still a very good footballer but the pool of potential teams that would want to take that on was actually quite small um, now he ultimately has ended up at Derby County via MLS that's, that's not where I think Lionel Messi's going MLS feels somewhat viable truth be told um, I know that teams are always kind of flirting with his agent a bit about is he ready? Is he ready? Is he ready? Couldn't um, an MLS team afford him, like, at all? You know what? If I think if it, I've learned anything about MLS, it's they will absolutely find the money when they need to. <laughs> um, <laughs> and if, if you think that there's a chance that it could happen, and equally you think about all of the potential revenues you would make back just on what you do. I'm, I'm not for a second falling into that trap of you could pay for it with shirt sales. I know you can't do that, but the global exposure, the marketing opportunities off the back of that, it's a type of growth that MLS clubs would absolutely love and are yearning for. I think most clubs, to be honest, are yearning for, but MLS clubs especially. In terms of Barcelona selling him, the trouble you've almost got with him, it's a little bit of a, a legacy decision whereby he's so associated with that club. The idea of selling him and putting him on the transfer list feels like such a sacrilegious suggestion. Mm. 
I think ultimately that's kind of the problem that they have run into, which many a club in fairness has run into. I'm sure you could talk about it with Liverpool and Steven Gerrard and Jamie Carragher. There's a point where the legacy overshadows the ability. And it, right. it's, it's not that Lionel Messi's a bad footballer. He's a very good footballer still. But it's the idea that the situation he's in now is not helping anyone because... I read something recently, which I thought had a really good quote in it, that uh, Tom Brady's wife, Giselle, said something yeah. along the lines of, my husband can't throw the fucking pass and catch it. And when I watch Messi a lot of the times, that's the predicament he's in. He's making the passes that he would want for himself because he's having to come deeper. The right, turnaround yeah. time required to fix this squad is so long, I think that you're just going to end up sapping what little he's got left. And by the time you're ready, you've got no reason, but or you've got no option, I think, but to get rid of him. So at that point, I think, yeah, you have to start debating. Maybe it's time for MLS. I know, I know he wanted to go back to Argentina at some point, but just float those ideas and sort of have a very frank conversation, player to club and club to player, and say, look, I don't know if this is working for either of us right now. Maybe it is best if they do it because – even just the money that they're paying in his wages, that's a large sum that you can start to play with and, and invest in new players. Um, again, as sacrilegious yeah. as that sounds. Well, I'm not sure how sacrilegious it does sound. I mean, is it really... Well, well but it goes, against, it, go, it goes against the narrative that they, the marketing side of this constructed, which is, again, in tandem with the actual results. So everybody knows about this you know, idealistic, how many of the, you know, nine of the 11 players in the Champions League final against Manchester United all those years ago were La Masia products, Gerard Piquet, Carlos Puyols, uh, Sergio Busquets, and Iniesta, Xavi, Messi, whoever else. And that's, I think that's what Chris is talking about there. And I completely agree in the sense that, you know, we, we know the story of Lionel Messi. He went to, he, his family made great sacrifice to go to Barcelona from Argentina and he had a growth problem. And, you know, everybody, nobody doubted, everybody doubted him and, and, and didn't think he was going to be the player that, that, you know, he eventually became and the club put his faith, put their faith in him. And, you know, he sort of returned the favor tenfold. And that's the magical little story we all want to believe. But at the end of the day, like, like Chris is, you know, like Chris is suggesting there, it's, is the, is the dream, is the narrative, is all of this now over because they're in a place where they need to move on not just one but a bunch of players from the first team if they're to be you know as competitive as they want to be in Europe and, and in the league um and d- does part of that entail moving on you know a player that has essentially served as their their sort of humble soft-spoken figurehead for a number of years yeah, if, if that is indeed the uh, the actual character of Messi and not what we have just assumed. I think it's moment. just a guy that likes Pepsi, I think. It's just a guy that just loves soft drinks. That's, yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty that's much it. it. Yeah. Is that humble though, Nika? I don't know if that's... I don't know. I think he just... I think it's devoid of any kind of human uh, human characteristics. He just... I think we're when we see him retire, he's just going to go back to his house and drink a bunch of, bunch of Pepsi. That's pretty much... That's pretty much it. I believe, I believe that that is exactly what Pepsi intend for the rest of his life. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure it's, it's a happy existence, but okay. Um, and, and not that Pepsi is bad if, if Pepsi 
uh, have heard this. Uh, I think your product is neutral. Um, <laughs> Can we influence the other direction with a sponsorship? But let us know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, believe me, um, do, Chris. Do you do you do you look at this uh, buy inside though and just think, wow? I mean, they are so versatile. There's so much fantastic. Uh, there's so many fantastic options there. When Lewandowski is not switched on, then someone else is. You know, you look at the midfield; it seems so adaptable. The back line, like you say, has got so so many different uh, amazing pieces in it. We, I guess, do we underestimate Bayern in recent years? No, I don't think we underestimate them. Um, I was thinking about this today. I might be about to really just annoy a lot of fans of the Bundesliga. Please. I I feel as if Bayern, they've done a fantastic job of building this squad and they've got such a sweet spot now where I think the ruthlessness they showed in getting rid of the likes of Hummels and people like that and bringing, I mean, exploiting the market to get the likes of Gnabry for the price they did. We talked about Davies, um, Leon Goretzka, sort of just picking up these pieces from their domestic market from well below market value has been excellent and deserves a lot of credit. There's also part of me that feels like when I look at them, there's maybe them and PSG, but I think it's more pronounced with Bayern where actually it's seen as sacrilege. I've used that word again. Sorry. It's seen as an absolute scandal if they don't win the league. And so actually there's not, I think as much outward pressure on, Bayern to, they have to really blow both their own feet off to not win the Bundesliga. So I think when it comes to sort of uh, European competition things like that, I'm almost just a little bit less impressed. I, yeah, I, I feel bad because I've got a Bayern scarf in the in the bedroom there that someone gave me. But turn coach, it's just I don't know. Well, they are they are also head and shoulders above the rest of the league financially, like. Head and shoulders and feet. Probably. Yeah, that's um, and that's why I say it. it's a little bit like PSG. You know, I mean, Monaco won the the league the other year, but that was kind of built on a lot of very good prospects and Kylian Mbappe coming in to the fold when he did and all this kind of stuff. Whereas like Dortmund had a good run at it, bless them, but when push came to shove, they just didn't have enough to to get across the line. And even then, sort of when it's felt like oh, Bayern might not win the league, it's because you know. Carlo Ancelotti just decided that it was a holiday camp. Um, <laughs> and then I think it was Robert uh, Nico Kovac, who again just didn't translate well to a big club. And Hansi Flick's done a tremendous job to turn them around. But at the same time, it's, it, to me, a lot feels like just filling the tank up on a sports car. Do you know what I mean? It's not, I don't think it's a massive turnaround. I think they're just so. You could argue maybe a little bit like Juventus, although I think that's about to be eroded in the next 12, 18 months, where they've just got enough ducks in a row that really the league season is a foregone conclusion and it just becomes about Europe. Where, to their credit, the way they played against Barcelona, I think was the most complete performance I've seen in Europe this season, genuinely. Yeah, I think a lot of fans are looking at this and thinking, God, if we had our team there, who just applied just even just a little effort, then, uh, you know, we might be seeing our team winning the Champions League. As PSG are now seeing, uh, Nico, as everything fell into place against Leipzig uh, just on Tuesday, uh, sorry, yeah, Tuesday night, uh, when 
they put on the best performance PSG have ever put on, Nico, and they prove <laughs> they're not just playing a bunch of farmers. Uh, these guys can also play well-paid and well-trained farmers from Germany. <laughs> I, li- I like that. I'm, I'm not sure it will please the, the fans of the Bundesliga that listen to the podcast. But IDGAF. Very good. No cursing on the podcast. We are a family. Right. We're a family podcast now. Um, yeah, exactly. Fuck it. <laughs> but yeah, no. I, I mean, I think uh, it's an interesting point because as I, I was sort of tweeting some of my thoughts as the game went on, and, and it was a very good performance from PSG, and something that I think Tuchel is sort of in the same same school of Guardiola, in, in the sense that you know you made the point about Liverpool's press, and you know sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, and Leipzig did some very similar things that that Liverpool did, the midfield pressing traps and sort of exploiting the weaknesses that are inherent to possessing the majority of the ball. Um, the interesting thing that that I was thinking about was um, I was having a conversation with Grace Robertson the other day. Um, yeah. avid Liverpool fan, great writer. Uh, she, great and writer. she was talking about how, uh, you know, her, her take sort of on, on the things that had gone wrong for Manchester city against Lyon was that sometimes maybe he expects too much tactically speaking and, and conceptually speaking from the players that he has and, and the things that they're supposed to do. And it, you know, maybe that's true specifically of some of the Manchester City players, but that certainly wasn't true of any of the PSG players tonight. And that was what was so, I think, encouraging about this performance is that it was, this game was played at an extremely high level tactically. You know, there were players that had, they they had a very conscientious idea as to what was going to occur if they didn't put the exact right pass in the right place and how to provoke certain pressing actions and what Leipzig was time, trying to do in terms of uh, provoking them to pass it to certain players in, in certain spots of the field. So I think, you know, we talk about Bayern being so promising and I, I think there is an element of that where they are just so aggressive and, and they have a, a system and a, and a, you know, uh, a gaggle of players that is extremely talented and also extremely physical, which plays into the one game aspect. But from PSG's perspective, you know, they're playing at an extremely high level, both physically and also from a tactical standpoint. So this is, this is definitely their best shot in, in quite a few years. And that, that's part of it here, isn't it, Chris, is that it, it does feel, um, I mean, it, now that the stars are aligning for these guys, but also that the, the, the likes of Neymar, the likes of Mbappe have gritted their teeth a little more than they were willing to do before or realize that they possibly have to do that. It won't just come across uh, in an easy way for them. Whereas before, maybe they assumed that because of their talent or whatever the situation, it might just fall into their lap because it had done that before. Maybe Tuchel, maybe also a mixture of what Barcelona haven't shown more recently, which is you know learning from the scenarios they find themselves in. And even better, looking at their opponents and going, what do they have that we don't? Mm-hmm. seems to be what is getting um, PSG into this situation. Because this evening, it's fair to say that they, you know, I think PSG do not thrive when they are painted to either be the underdogs or the bad guys. And tonight they almost, they didn't want to be the bad Well, they were guys. playing an energy drink company, so. <laughs> yeah, that well, yeah, and what is worse. In some cases, know. literal energy versus Human energy, I guess. Love that. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> Soft power against sugary power. <laughs> <laughs> that sweet, sweet um, guarine power. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, great. Right. Make your point one more time, Chris. Right. I should nail it this time in theory. Um, yeah, I, th- I think, it, you know, PSG's performance was impressive. It, it was aggressive. I don't think they gave Leipzig much opportunity to build any kind of momentum in the game. But I think there's part of me that expected that because the that triumvirate of Neymar and Bappe, Di Maria, they were good. I thought Di Maria in particular was very good. Yeah, but I, like I say, I would kind of expect that they've benefited, I think, from the fact that they've played Atalanta and Leipzig, and and sure, there's an inherent pressure of if you fail, you kind of get laughed out of the competition. But I, I, I don't think PSG have necessarily pulled up any trees with beating those two teams personally. Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, the the other side uh, of, of that being you know that PSG are out. Uh, because they lost the moral competition tonight. Uh, Leipzig, of course, were um, are the underdogs. They uh, have been the underdogs from day one. They're plucky. They've been around for not long. Blah, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What does this tell us about being able to build a club in a very short space of time while everyone else is dithering? What are they doing right? that other people seem to be doing wrong? And why is it that some other people, some people seem to believe that it's only really in this kind of situation and not in a Manchester United or a big institution situation that you could achieve this? Uh, interesting that we were having a conversation about sentimentalism and like, you know, the special sauce that one needs to run Barcelona or something like that, because that yeah. is completely devoid. It's absent in clubs like RB Leipzig. They make really intelligent decisions in terms of recruiting that are, you know, informed by all of the practices that go into scouting. It's not just analytically or statistically, but they have good people that provide a rationale, a logical rationale as to why they like certain players. Chris and I were also talking about um, someone like Upa Meccano, uh before the podcast and how good of a player he is. Um, but Chris mentioned that you know, when he was in Austria, he had spent some time at defensive midfield, and I know they have some pretty interesting um they have some pretty, you know, unique ways as to how they like to to train some of their uh, more talented youth prospects. That gives them more ability to be flexible in their position. And again, you run into maybe what's what these clubs don't view as a problem. But you know, if a player can bounce between Salzburg and Leipzig and New York, 
you know, you, you have a, a network of a, a, a seriously talented group of players that can go to a bunch of different places and have success at varying levels. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the reason I think one of the reasons or some of the reasons behind the success uh, behind Leipzig is that they have, they don't take a, a send sentimental, fundamental, uh, or a traditional approach to a lot of the the stuff that is the pitfalls for some of the bigger clubs, and they benefit from that. You know, they have an extremely good recruitment and extremely good and uh, modernized coaching system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is an interesting one, isn't it, Chris? Because I think you know, while, whilst we're talking about other teams that aren't able to win anything, we're talking about gaps between winning and stuff. They do seem to have created somewhat of a, a culture, I guess, at uh, Leipzig, which is what a lot of people weren't really expecting. Yeah, I think, look, they've, they've invested a lot, the Red Bull company. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that I think a lot of people forget it's it's Rassenball sport. It's not Red Bull Leipzig. I think in some ways they've almost achieved their goal. Well, well, it is and it is and it isn't, right? Well, like... that's my point, is that I think... You know, there, there are certain aspects of this team, like Julian Nagelsmann, that have done a tremendous job of basically covering up the less than desirable aspects of this whole organisation. Um, some of the far-right elements, things like that, the, the fact that, like I said, they, they have pumped in money. It's, it's not like... You do not want to give the far-right energy drinks. Well, it's, it's, it's not like, for comparison's sake, Atalanta, where there's a, a slow build and it's sort of it's done in a much more organic way. And you could, without wishing to sound pious, you could argue, you know, a, a more honest way. I guess is is the best word I can no, sum up okay. in, in that moment. Um, but yeah, like I say, I, it's difficult because I'm a very big fan of Tyler Adams. I think he's a wonderful footballer. I see how he has benefited from that system. Um, they have done, I think, if I want to take away every single political aspect of it for a second, just on its sporting merits, yeah, Ooh. setting up clubs in New York, Brazil, Austria, has produced a fairly decent uh, production line, if you will, in terms of getting players to Leipzig. My curiosity as someone living in New York is what benefit realistically is there for Red Bull in New York right now? Uh, in terms of how how do they see something from that relationship come across the border? Because they occasionally get a lone player, but it's usually not, to be brutally honest, a great one. Um, and I just think that, yeah, it, it benefits the mothership a lot in the same way that I think NYC FC benefits Man City because they get the likes of Jack Harrison, um, who will go and join Leeds and, and earn them a bit of money, and Zach Steffen. And it benefits Jack Harrison because he gets to England but what it is for that club or the capture of that club, I'm less convinced by. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's, I mean, you could argue even some of the fact, you know, I spoke to Jonathan Harding who, who wrote the fantastic book Mensch and, and the fact that Nagelsmann's picked a club that doesn't necessarily have a strong identity or, or long-standing history because it means he can influence things to a greater degree. But I think we can easily get caught up into how brilliant and wonderful is Nagelsmann, how brilliant and wonderful are these players, and forget how that sausage is made. Yep. Yeah, well, in this I case, the that. energy drink, but yeah. To be fair, probably similar ingredients. Yeah. Um, most energy drinks are made of pork. 
Um, so <laughs> that's completely untrue, though. I don't think anyone is going to uh, pick me up on that, or at least I hope not. Um, I don't know who would anyway. We have our legal team standing by. It's just Dave in his underwear. <laughs> Yeah. The funny thing is, it's similar for the Statman Dave company. <laughs> um, both companies operating on Dave in his underwear. Uh, and The Atlas Dave, shrugged. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dave was a massive Ayn Rand fan. Um, doesn't matter. Again, it's the same joke. We get it. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get on to the we'll get on to the finals and stuff, probably do a special podcast for that later in the week. It would be good to um, speak about that in a little bit more detail. Um, but the, let, let's, let's move on then from Leipzig. We've probably nailed them just enough. Um, it does lead though, uh, Nico to Leon versus Bayern. And for me, it just seems as if Leon maybe have peaked around too early here or two rounds too early, if you will, because, well, they're now playing Bayern. And, it, you know, incredible as this is, they're playing Bayern. They are, in fact, playing Bayern Munich. Yeah, you, uh, we, we have all, we, we know this. We, we, we are subject to it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's an interesting thing because, um, you know, as we were kind of talking about there with Munich and what they've done recruiting-wise, I think to a certain extent what's gone under the radar in the past couple of years since Pep Guardiola's departure, obviously they've had a lot of coaching turnover, but uh, you know Hans-Dieter Flick is the, the manager right now and he did some time uh, studying under uh, Joachim Lowe at, in, in Germany as well as uh, various assistants at Bayern Munich. And, you know, Bayern have a discernible identity on the ball. They're a possession-heavy or uh, yeah, possession-heavy team, and, and that's obviously the nature of how they have to play given the, the quality in the Bundesliga and all these things. Um, but if, you, if you've seen how they, they played specifically against um, some of the teams in the Champions League, they, they, they occupy like a similar possession kind of exploitative shape with four or five across the front, and they rely on the brilliance of Thiago to progress the ball um, through the midfield and, and do that efficiently. So... It's going to be, I would say, tactically a pretty similar match to the one against Manchester City. The The interesting thing to see would be is if it pans out in the same way. I think Bayern have more security in that regard because they have better athletes in certain positions. They can take a bit more risks. They have David Alaba and Alfonso Davies and you know a variety of other players that can cover them in, in situations where defenders are isolated. Um, but I think it will generally be a pretty similar game to the one we saw against City. I have more faith in Bayern Munich's ability to come through that not only because of the defenders, but also because Lewandowski is having a godlike year um, and Muller seems to be finding his feet again uh, and linking up with Lewandowski. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's going to be pretty similar to that. So it'll be see, interesting to see how that pans out. Let's move uh, leagues now, Kristen, and someone that you and I have always been fascinated with, Antonio Conte. Uh, has he overachieved or underachieved this season? And I, you know, I mean that in Europe and also the league. Um, that's a good question. I, I think I think it was always going to take time for him to build. I think maybe we're looking at it through the lens of how quickly he did that with Chelsea. 
Um, and and with Juve as well, to be fair. And he's always yeah. been successful in some capacity in his first year. At, well, all of his top, all of his you know massive appointments. And I and I think um, the the situation with Chelsea, that turnaround, if you will, or that success in the Premier League, was very much helped by the fact that he really did inherit a team that looked like a, a tire fire that I don't think was quite as bad as as their league position suggested. It was just they hated Jose Mourinho, to be brutally honest. Yeah. Um, whereas I think with this one, yeah, I don't think he'll be necessarily delighted with how things have gone in the league. But if you could come away with the Europa League, playing as well as they have with Lukaku, again, I think back to his peak, um, which, again, that's a separate issue about Man United and all that kind of stuff that I don't think is worth discussing. But with him looking as sharp as he is, I think he's done very well this first season. I don't think he's underachieved. Um, I think he, he's probably hit that sweet spot in the middle because I don't think the Europa League should be seen as a gigantic achievement. But I think it's something for them to celebrate at the same time because it's a European Cup and that is not anything I think that should be uh, scoffed at. Um, and he's building a side that looks, again, very... Um, we talk about aggressive a lot tonight and, and that's kind of what I think of with Conte's football throughout. The trouble we've always talked about with him is is how does he manage those those separate competitions when he's got European and domestic ambitions running side by side. It's, it has been difficult for him. Now, I think some of the benefit he's had this time round is the fact that COVID has basically taken three months away. Um, so, it, them winning the Europa League, if that's what happens, will be a fantastic achievement in itself. Um, it's then how they will carry that form into next season, I think, that will ultimately define whether he's overachieved or underachieved because I think they've got a fantastic chance already without a ball even being kicked of winning the um, the, the league next season. Just because of what's going on at Juve? Yeah, just because it, we genuinely have no idea. I think... Even anyone who's saying, oh, Juve will definitely win the league, you're taking a punt. You're absolutely taking a punt. I'm, I'm sorry. We've got no idea what Pirlo is going to be like next season or how that team will adapt to him. I mean, uh, Nico, you, you're, you seem to agree. Well, uh, an absence of an idea is not necessarily no idea, I would say. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, there's a lot filling that empty void. <laughs> So, You've got a lot of smart words there, boy. What are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'll be doing particularly well. Equally, Juventus are financially dominant in Serie A and they have a lot of good players. So maybe average, who knows? That That's the other thing with Pirlo as well is that, you know, when, when I've read sort of these little quotes about how he wants to do things, again, it's a lot of sort of buzzwords about I want to play this and I want to play that. I say the same thing when I load up football manager, unless I actually <laughs> sort of the, really, yeah, you know, it, 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 it's all great to say, I want to play aggressive football or attacking football. that's, you know, it's, it's no different to putting bread in the toaster and saying, I want toasted bread. Like unless you're actually building the machine yourself, that's what the best guys get paid right. the big bucks for. It's, right, of course. it's not right. simply the idea. Everybody wants to play good football. 
yes, there are certain scopes of difference in terms of <laughs> I want to be oh my God. reactive or proactive <laughs> or whatever. But in terms of how you actually translate that into your ideas and the group and how that all interacts with each other and, and how people and, and players relate to each other in that tactical system, that's where the difficulty is in management. It's not identifying what you want to do. It's then making it happen. That is the worry, I guess, is that you, they haven't finished the interview process and they went, sure, we'll give you the job. And he went, no, I'm just saying, I want to play football like I am. I have no idea how to achieve this. That's just how I would do it. It's up to you guys. It's a long-term aspiration for me. I've just got to say this. Um, just goes into training and just starts going, guys, should we just play like Ajax? Cool, just play like Ajax. That'd be fantastic. Uh, we did discuss that some, somewhat earlier in the week on, on the podcast. So uh, Void uh putting the listeners through plo twice but i i agree with what you're saying chris and those follow-up thoughts seem very prevalent for a lot of people who are looking at the worry of uh of plo um having said that though i mean look at inter milan nico i don't i i i'm trying to work out whether i like them or not they do seem a bit like um again like any conte team an island of misfit toys um <laughs> And yeah. Yeah, there's something quite likable about that. And I think I'm there's something quite likable about just supporting a post a post Manchester United Lukaku, right? Yeah, and and also just the fact that Manchester United, I don't know, he felt very much like he was being cast away from Manchester United, and there was a bit of a dismissiveness and a bit of a uh, you know just just in general like a lot of ignorance around Lukaku, and now to see that dominant performance in so many ways uh, against Shakhtar, who, you know, maybe if we're talking about writing narrative here, are the ultimate uh, journalist sort of wet dream in terms of narrative, I guess, right now, um, for good and bad reasons. Um, you know, it was, it's fantastic. It has been great to watch him this season. And I've watched plenty of Inter Milan because I do like Conte's team uh, and I like Conte, but they're not, um, you know, they aren't... Um, they aren't currently in their final form, maybe it's fair to say. And the worry here, I think because Conte, uh, you know, feels he might, a lot of people on the outside feels that Conte may be leaving, is that we might not see this come to fruition. And actually, it's quite frustrating because I'd quite like to see this come to fruition. I'm wondering, though, whether Conte is using the situation at Inter uh, to motivate the players right now and, you know, spur them on to win the Europa League final for sort of a, look, I'm leaving. And then when they do win, he'll go, okay, fine, I'll stop. Certainly a possibility. Uh, and I agree with you. I think there's there's a beauty to the transitional nature of a fully formed or fully evolved Antonio Conte team, as we saw at Chelsea. Um, and it would be nice to see in, in the years coming a, a little bit of a break from Juventus just winning and winning and winning Serie A titles. Uh, but... You know, there's significant, obvious disagreement between Antonio Conte and the financial support that's brought by the the investors that have uh, put money into enter in, into the club as a whole. Um, so, it, you know, it's I, I like the spirit of the team because, as we mentioned, there I think there are several likable characters in that squad. Um, Alexis Sanchez as, as stars as a very big part of that for me because I've always enjoyed him as a player. But right. um, 
but yeah, it, it, you know, who knows where it'll go. Maybe, I mean, we're, we're in a post-coronavirus or not post-coronavirus world, but, you know, pandemic world. And maybe the, the, the interesting thing about the UVA appointment for me as well with regards to this situation is that I don't think it's with, outside of the realm of the possibility that Pirlo maybe never gets an actual game and they just decide to go with Allegri or, or Conte if he leaves Inter b- before he even gets the opportunity to take uh, reign of the first team. So. Right. Okay. Yeah, I get, I get that. Yeah. So you're a great interim coach. Thanks for everything. <laughs> you have the opportunity, yeah. I think, to go back to Conte after the failed project that was Maurizio Sarri, which I don't think was all his fault, but who knows. Then I, th- yeah. I think you, yeah. you do it, you know? Yeah. And, and then you just wonder whether Conte would do that. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, also then Ronaldo under Conte, all this sort of, how much more ripped can Ronaldo get? Um, <laughs> it's going to be fascinating to find out. Um, having, I mean, having said that though, Chris, this is setting up uh, for Inter to take the Europa League. Uh, I mean, I know Sevilla are still a fantastic side, but you would say that Inter, after that dominant performance, are uh, the favourites for this final. A lot of people want, want and willing them to win this uh, just because of the narrative around players like Lukaku, etc., etc., um, it's it, I, I want them to win it. Put it that way. Yeah, uh, but Sevilla kind of love that whole uh, shtick, if you will, of being yeah. the underdogs. They, they, I think it made them a lot more comfortable against Manchester United, for example. Um, and I thought they were actually as much as Man United wasted a lot of chances. I thought. Um, I I just maybe it's a bias in me, but I just love watching Ever Benega play football. Um, and if it turns out he does go to Saudi Arabia, I know he's agreed a deal there. I don't know if that will officially go through, or he might try and change, change and get out of it. I don't know, but yeah, he he is a wonderful football player to watch. And I think when I look at Sevilla in general, um, they will be the underdog, but they'll absolutely relish that. They'll they'll love that, in fact. Um, I think they'd rather give into the ball and see what they can do and see what they can break down. Um, and for that reason alone, I just don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I think this will be a lot tighter than people, uh, people will make out. It pretty much leads perfectly on to Manchester United, doesn't it, uh, Nico? Uh, we thought they were through. I thought that this project was finished. He finally resurrected them back from the dead. Manchester United were ready to t- reclaim the title next season as Jaden Sancho fits effortlessly into the team. <laughs> or so we thought. Or so we thought. What's happening? I, I don't really know. Like, what's the what, what's happening with Manchester United? I mean, surely all the analysis of them relying on. Uh, the talent of the players and not necessarily a repeatable system was just lies. This is Manchester United. (laughs) They are an institution. Um, They are in fact an institution. For years, the rhetoric of players being good, et cetera, et cetera, bullshit like that um, has really helped them through. And now here we are years later, uh, regretting the false narratives that we've told ourselves time after time, people feeling underwhelmed, by what the summer holds now that they can't get Jaden Sancho, allegedly. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it's it's 
an indication of where the club has gone in recent years that so much of their transfer policy and their fate as a club with regards to the kinds of players that they can get rests pretty significantly on what they can do at the very end of the season. And, you know, I've said it before, say it again, what has become clear under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is that it's less about a system and more about what has been discussed ad nauseum by Manchester United fans again and again and again, which is we see every summer. Well, if we shift out five players and we buy these other six, then then we'll be you know then we'll be in good shape. Then then we'll do this on the other. When in actuality, I don't think there has been an actualization of the maximum potential of the players that they have, and they've done well in in recent times. They had a like decent run towards sort of the end of the season, but. A lot of that is predicated on some pretty interesting refereeing decisions with regards to Manchester United and, and again, the individual talent of certain players. So with them obviously not being able to qualify for the Champions League, it's it's another year that's delayed in this project. And you wonder how that, that stales over the next year with uh, Solskjaer at the helm. I'll be interested to see. Uh, there is plenty more Manchester United discussion to be had. We try sometimes to have it when Dave isn't on the podcast. Um, never works out that way. But. It never it never really works out. I mean, it's never worked out as positively as when Dave is on the podcast. Uh, but, you know, we can but try. Uh, Chris, speaking of positive chat, let's go to uh, someone who used to love Manchester but now hates it with a passion. Joe Hart is finally uh, the goalkeeper for Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, and it's fair to say, Chris, he might be the number one choice next season. I mean, I hope not. Um, I'm not even a Spurs fan. I don't even think Adam wants that. Um, right. No, I think, yeah, it's, this is the other thing we're going to have to sort of adjust to, I think, a little bit, is that coronavirus means that the way that clubs spend is going to be drastically different. And for a club as, I want to say, parsimonious as Tottenham, um, <laughs> okay. yeah. the fact that they've, I think, understandably, put more of an emphasis on let's fix the midfield, so let's get Hoiberg in. I think I read a report today. <laughs> Joe Hart. It fix everything. Yeah, well, I, th- I think they're interested in Sangare of Toulouse. So they've right. prioritised the thing, the the midfield as a key aspect of, of where they need to improve. Joe Hart as a backup on probably not a lot of money. It means that essentially their young goalkeepers can go out on loan and don't need to just sit in that horrible vacuum of not playing minutes. Um, I don't think it's a terrible idea. He might play a couple of cup games at most. Um, What's yeah. what, third to Michel Baum? Um, I don't know. It'd be Gazaniga, wouldn't it? Uh, Loris, Gazaniga, and then Hart. I mean, look, it's it's probably not where he predicted his career would be five years ago. I think he no, it's not. Going. Yeah, and and that element. I don't know if it's maybe Euro twenty sixteen or or when that moment came, but to watch a goalkeeper's career, I don't want to say crumble, that sounds harsh, but to watch the momentum drain out of a goalkeeper like that and the confidence drain out of him, in a similar way to to what I saw with Paul Robinson, it is very disappointing. Um, Robinson, I think, recovered a little bit with Blackburn, but was never at that same level again. I don't think Hart's quite had that recovery, but to his credit, he's been refreshingly honest about you know, what he needs to do and how he needs to improve. So you could argue... Well, that's because everyone around him was being so, as you put it, refreshingly honest about him. <laughs> Probably. I think to that end, Spurs have thought, you know what, let's let's take a flyer on, it, on a goalkeeper that 
could come in and, and do something. It's it, he's not terrible as a third choice option, I don't think. Mm. I'm I'm gonna really I'm gonna really start being more refreshingly honest with people. <laughs> no, 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 it's not harsh at all. I'm refreshingly honest. Uh, <laughs> I believe that is also uh, Fox News's new line. Refreshingly honest. Uh, Nico, uh, speaking of which, your love for the right wing. Um, you know, do, do you think that uh, th- this Mourinho-esque uh, shape of Spurs is the right way for Spurs to go? Because I, there are times where I look at this and obviously a lot of people go, oh, it's Mourinho building, it's Mourinho building for Mourinho. But when I look at other people's squads, I often think, okay, well, I can see how X player would work under another manager. You know, I can see how, you know, even looking at Sari moving on from Juventus, who have only just won the league and crash out in Champions League. I still look at that squad and think, okay, well, any manager that's coming in can still rebuild in some way. There are still some parts there that I still still see as even semi-useful. It, Mourinho always seems to leave teams in such a Mourinho uh, mould that it makes it very difficult if you want to move away from Mourinho. But then maybe Spurs have overcommitted at this point. Yeah, I, I certainly get that that point, and I completely agree. I was having a conversation with uh, Nathan Clark and uh, Chris Miller of uh, the Extra Inch oh, podcast, right. and um, you know they kind of have the same sentiments about about Joe Hart as well. I think they they were making some arguments that you know if it's not that much money, then it, it's also it fills the English quota that Premier League teams have to have. But that could have been done with a youth player, and and there's certain options there, and probably even there with less money. Um, but equally, the point that it made me think about was I think a couple of years ago I wrote an article about um, Hugo Yoris under under Pochettino and how his inability with his feet sort of limited the system and limited what they were able to do on the ball, especially as a team looking to construct, you know, adequate or efficient possession play and and do all the the things that other possession teams do. Um, And this is exactly what you're saying there with, you know, how can another coach, how can someone else build when Joe Hart is the poster boy for a goalkeeper who's specific tactical moment in in the landscape of football kind of passed them by within six months or, or a year, you know, with the advent of more progressive and proactive play coming to the Premier League. He was just, he, he, it was something, it was a skill set that he had never worked on and never, um, you know, been able to, has never been able to add to his game. And so adding someone like Joe Hart to the team, regardless of how much he may play, doesn't show that Spurs are trying to go in that direction and it doesn't show that they're um, going in a direction that, that, that seem to be uh, putting them on an upward trajectory over the past couple of years. So it's a, it's a weird decision for me. It's a funny one because if this signing had been made under Pochettino, I think a lot of people would maybe be spinning it in another way. They'd be going, look at this guy, Pochettino, he's able to pull guys <laughs> out, but because it's under Mourinho, the, the framing and obviously a very cynical Levy, a lot of people, Oh, this is you know this is a signal of where Spurs are at now. One's down, blah blah blah. It's so interesting to see the difference in perception, Kristen, of different managers and what their tenure means for that club. Because, like I say, under Poch, I think this is framed very different. All of this is framed very differently. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, I had a thought like that a couple of months ago. The idea that realistically your legacy in a club is as much written by your successor as, as you um 
because it ultimately depends what direction they take it in. If if they do mm. crash and burn, you're you're kind of made to look a lot better than you are. If if they thrive, then a lot of times it's seen as oh well, you know it it, it was either you that laid the groundwork or you know you were underperforming and they realised that potential. So I think um, Tottenham to me are an interesting club in the sense that the move to get Mourinho was very easy to interpret it was a case of let's try and get a trophy i think let's get a, a born winner in inverted commas um or a serial winner which again, serial something yeah it, it costs you a lot of money cost you the better part of 15 million a year um but then at the same time i think well you aren't spending money to the tune of that either so it doesn't quite make sense to me so it's I have to be honest, Tottenham are in a funny state right now. For me, as, a, as an outsider looking in on them, um, I just don't know where Mourinho is going to take them. That's the thing. At least with Pochettino, I, I felt like the the chart for progression was very easy to identify because it was just about taking them from sort of a top six team into top four, maybe even a title push. I, I can't really say I see the same tracks for um for Mourinho to try and follow well uh which tracks would you like us to follow let us know on our social media over the next few weeks uh as football kind of disappears for a very short space of time before returning uh I'm already enjoying what I thought would be weeks away but Liverpool's pre-season in uh I believe it's now Salzburg already uh it's unusual Nico to see a, a weird sort of pre-season-esque thing happening during the end of the Champions League. Are you a little worried about football burnout? I'm already seeing a lack of new or fresh narrative in the in the league or even in the Champions League or anywhere else. It worries me. Have we used all the stories? Well, when I when I wake up every day, I have an alarm set. It goes off at seven a.m. and it's titled do we have enough narrative? You know, that's, that's kind of what gets Brilliant. me up in the morning. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the, my major concern, not, you know, the tendons of the players and so on and so forth. Right. Okay. Yeah. They walk around clubs and goes, uh, guys, the narrative says you don't break him <laughs> for another few months. So you all need to stay healthy. All right. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. You can break it Euro 2021. <laughs> so we can all blame that. Not but think, the, uh, but think for. I think you bring up a good point because think for a moment how much consecutive football we will now be subject to, given yeah. this specific circumstance. You know, the delayed Euros, the Concacaf competitions, the so on and so forth. I mean, and not only that, fair. but I I know what happens in these people's minds. Like I know what happens for journalists. Or I know these guys are maybe you know uh, more used to grinding out stories and stuff. Chris, you must know this yourself. I know you've done the journalistic grind maybe a little bit more uh, than Nico or I, I have. Come the end of the season, you know, it's not only about the players burning out. It is also about the staff and the journalists in the, you know, in the press conferences, obviously press conferences live, but, you know, these people trying to squeeze every inch out of, uh, well, no, not every inch. Sorry, that's, that's, I misspoke there. These Who will think of the journalists? I'm just saying, like, people think of them. Who will think of them? I will finish then on this. <laughs> what is, what's been your favourite moment for Man City this season? This season? Yeah. Gosh. Um, 
Pep Guardiola talking to uh, the ghost of Mikel Arteta. Yeah. yeah, that was actually a great moment. Yeah, I was, I was kind of yeah. hoping for an on the pitch moment, but Pep. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that rather satisfying. Uh, my second question to you, Nico, is: Do you like the new Man City kit? The sort of dinosaur eggshell kind of look, the home kit. Uh, I mean, that's definitely a very uh, r- uh, rose-tinted spectacle way of doing it, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, they are a lacquer for an oil company, so why not take the inspiration for what, how that oil is created um, to the dinosaurs? So yes, I am. I am. I do enjoy it. I do enjoy the look because I used to. A little personal insight, a little personal anecdote. Anecdote for the listeners here. Um, Used to, uh, used to when I was a kid. Most mornings there was a little, you know, uh, Quaker Oats. They had the kids' sort of uh, oatmeal packets, and they had little dinosaur eggs in them that were just like kind of. I don't know what they were. I think they were just sugar shaped in to dinosaurs that would be slipped into the oats and you would make it with a little hot water. And it had sort of like, again, what I'm referring to is the dinosaur sort of pattern, dinosaur egg kind of pattern. And, right. and yeah. that's why it's reminiscent for me. So yeah, it's, it's a nice nostalgic memory that they're tapping into specifically for I me. I know that's what the designers were going for. Have you ever had Quaker Oats children's dinosaur animal special edition? Have you ever had that? You just went, I love it. Whatever you're thinking. <laughs> I love it. Whatever. Yeah, do it. Guys, do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know what I was going to ask you since you're a man of culture, uh, okay, not I'm to make this you. not to make this podcast go on for more than two hours, but who no, gives I'm, a I'm, fuck I'm, at this I'm point? Um, I saw a picture, a, pic, a very happy picture of Mohamed Salah uh, in right. his nice new Nike training kit. And let me tell you. Something, something in my in my shorts started moving around when I saw that Nike kit with the Liverpool logo. Yeah, my it God, so it just looks yeah. good, doesn't it? Just it just looks, looks good. I've, I've just got to say, I, I just put it this way, right? I've never been so excited for a kit launch. Um, and uh, and he's had a kid, and he's had a kid launch. So that <laughs> that yeah. that's the worst joke I've ever made. But no, no, that was also. Really really enjoyed your public castration of Adidas creative. You know, I agree. I watched the ad and it wasn't good. I could do better. Maybe. I don't know. I felt, I feel frustrated by it because I wasn't really, I wasn't really criticizing. You probably could do better. I wasn't criticizing (laughs) Adidas or Manchester United. It was more Uh that I was criticizing the on the bus that could be behind this. I was like, Surely, if because I so put it this way, right? There's there's been this Manchester United. Is it the away kit launch this week? I don't know if it's the away or the third kit, but it's yeah. the away kit. And the launch involved a video which looked like it'd been edited on a mobile phone. <laughs> Not that I'm saying it's bad quality, but it looked like it had been put through like one of the apps that you just sort of go throw the clips in, give me a video, right? And it, it just sort of does it for you. Yes. And then it puts a load of light leaks on to make it look professional like they used to back in, you know, 2005. Right. And then put it out. And I was annoyed because I was like, well, someone will have received quite a lot of cash for this. Someone will have gone, oh, we've got a socially... And you, and you didn't receive that cash, so... Well, it's, it's not necessarily that I deserve that. It's more that in the time of, like, you know, socially conscious movements... Mm-hmm. Why couldn't Manchester United have gone to someone and gone, look, like, you know, we need a young, cool, creative 
who isn't some white middle class guy to give us some sort of narrative here. You know what I think and it's then, reminiscent of that that ad. You know what I think it's reminiscent of. Remember that great what? Nike ad that they did. Uh, I want to say a couple of years ago now. That was like the streets of London, and it was very culturally with its ear to the floor, at least to my uncultured ear. And it was like going through the different parts and it's like, you're London. And this was like, run. Yeah. This was like, people take the bus. People do take public transportation. And also we want you to buy the shirt. So yeah, put the two pieces together. Yeah. Wear the shirt on the bus. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I guess I felt that way, but then I read the creative was it was a tribute to the people who could not travel to the away games. And I thought, well, first of all, how many of how many people are taking a public bus <laughs> all the way to... Well, that's to like some... That, I didn't know that, but I'm glad you said it because that that's like when uh, a fraternity or sorority that is implicit in probably many sex crimes... Um, says that their fundraiser is to save the dolphins or something because you know right. it is to save the dolphins and there ostensibly is some money going towards some endangered porpoise but at the same time there are sex crimes being perpetuated so again yeah. exploited workers the reasoning is the people that couldn't go to the away games on the bus so. to come back into this conversation <laughs> <laughs> the porpoises, but sex crimes <laughs> <laughs> Nigo's not making the point that anyone involved in the creative of this committed a sex crime. Again, we just plop that onto the legal team, which is Dave, fully erect. I just yeah, <laughs> yeah. again, sex crimes. It's been really good to chat to you guys today. Thank you very much for joining us for the front three. Uh, if you want to let us know about, we at some point we will do a new kit review of every team. I'm very happy with Nike this season with Liverpool. Uh, it's a change, and at the same time, it's very welcome change, and the quality seems fantastic. Uh, the players all look very happy and suave and well-dressed. That's all most people want, put it that way. Um, and Chris, believe me, we will have time for your Newcastle review at some point. But in the meantime, tweet us, let us know what you think about your your new kit for your new club. Uh, Chris, people can go join you on Twitter. Am I correct? What are you writing about this week? Uh, just did a piece on Nagelsmann. Got a piece on Ava Benega coming in a day or two. So, busy, busy. Yeah, love that. Look, very busy. Uh, Izzy, wizzy. Uh, Nico, what about you? What are you writing about? Is it Alien and their involvement in the Champions League? Or what are we What are we talking about? Exactly. No, exactly. Exactly that. No, uh, as I mentioned on the last pod I was on with Adam... Uh, I'm writing a PDF that I'll be selling, uh, hopefully published at the end of the month. Five essays for $7. I haven't decided on the price. It's between five and seven. Maybe I'll hit six. But you can buy that at the end of the month. Uh, all on film. I shall be investing. So, I shall be investing. That's okay. You're going to get a copy uh, for free. But everyone else, I'll you got to pay. Invest. I will still invest. Um, what's what's the highlight of the PDF so far? Is there is there anything? Is there a tidbit that you can drop for us? Is there a line that you feel particularly proud of? Um, ba, ba, ba. I took a who directed it? I forget. Eternity test, right? Yep, I took a COVID test. No, uh, what's his name? I don't know. The guy that directed 1917 also directed another war film called Jarhead. 
And I connected that to some pedantic and probably boring philosophy theory. Yes, that's it. it, it it's nothing. Uh, it's nothing Foucauldian. No Foucault in this one, at least not yet. Sure, just yeah. lots of Sam Mendes. That's who it is. You got it, Sam Mendes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, love that. Okay. Well, I in that case, then sure, you can have my seven dollars. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks a lot for joining us today, both of you. Uh, you're both fantastic as always. Uh, if you want to let us know your feedback on anyone, go over to the Apple uh, Podcast app. I want to say. And uh, are we on Spotify? Because I get that question a lot. We are on Spotify, and if we aren't, it's not my responsibility. It's actually Adam Goldwood, <laughs> who has the only login. Ah, yes, the uh, technical team. Yeah, the, te- the technical team. Adam <laughs> Boltwood in his, in his um, The infertile crazy. Adam Boltwood. Really need to stop making all these jokes. Um, I'm sorry. It's, you know, it's, been, it's been lovely to spend time with you guys this evening. Hopefully you've enjoyed it too. If you're not already subscribed, go subscribe. Uh, please do leave a review. And the podcast will reach you in your sleep. Here's what I want the listeners to do this week. Sorry to cut you off one more time. We want you to go home. Hopefully say, no, don't go home, actually. Stay where you are. Don't breathe on anyone. But tell your family members about us. If you have living family members, tell them that you listen to a football podcast and that you should also... If your grand is dead, I'm sorry. But also tell her about it if she's alive. Okay, thanks. Excellent. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 